this week we're going to start a new series that we're actually calling Riches. A new series that we're actually calling Riches. And we're not going to take five or six weeks to talk about five or six ways that Jesus can increase your portfolio or, or increase your 401 or, or, or give you status or power or security or hope. Instead, we're going to talk about how the understanding of who God is in Christ and the gospel redefines the things that we pursue in our life, the things that we seek to define ourselves by, the hope, the security, the power, the riches that we tend to go after in this world and how Jesus takes those things, redefines those things and puts an eternal value in those things so that we can better understand what it means to be a people who treasure the riches of the gospel. We won't find ourselves being a people who spend our lives and spend the breath that God gives us seeking after treasures that can never really satisfy that can never fill that ache of eternity that God hardwired into our hearts and souls when he was forming us in our mother's womb. We were created for something much larger than this world and the existence that we find on this earth here and now. And there are times throughout our lives from the very youngest of ages to the day before we we pass away when that eternity in our souls begins to ache and begins to throb and begins to swell and we're faced with crises and moments where we have to measure ourselves. And in America, the tendency for us to is to try to busy ourselves and distract ourselves from having to deal with ourselves and and wrestle with the ache that's going on. And we tend to look for different things to fill that thing. If I just work harder, that insecurity will go away. If I just perform better, that need will be met. This, This eternal ache throbs in our soul and we're in a culture that seeks its hardest to silence it or to be distracted from it. And so we're going to take the next few weeks to talk about how the gospel redefines the treasures, the riches that we pursue after in our daily life and how those riches begin to shape, begin to fill, and begin to draw us to a larger, more eternal reality. So the next few weeks, we're going to do a series called The Riches. And this week, before we do that, I I want to explain a little bit of the conviction behind it, Um, one of the dangers in doing it. One of the dangers I'm aware of in teaching it and one of the dangers I want us to be aware of as, we, as a people who, who are studying and learning and hoping to be changed by these things. And then I want to put a little context around it. I want to connect it to the, the larger reality of who God is. Uh, first, uh, the conviction. As we were praying the last few weeks, in particular not being up here preaching, not spending the majority of my week uh, preparing to do this and praying for you, praying for the church, praying for where we are. I was again drawn back to what we've talked about over and over and over in the last 18 months that we've been in existence is that we want to be a people who more than anything are after the depth and, and maturation. There, there are lots of things that we can get sidetracked with as a people and as a church. What we're doing for this group or that group and how we're being defined by this people and that people, uh, what we want to be known by in this group or by that group. And you can get sidetracked and, and pursue lots of different rabbit trails that in and of themselves aren't bad. But when it comes down to it, the thing that we want to be defined by is maturity, it is depth. We won't want to wake up one day and find that as a people, individually or corporately as a church, we're 10 miles wide and, and two inches deep in the things of God and the realities of God and, and in our soul. So we talk a lot about cultivating the soul. What we want to cultivate is maturity and depth. And I've been increasingly convinced and convicted by the reality that maturity is best defined by our ability to accurately take the implications of the gospel and make appropriate application to the realities of our everyday life. Maturity does not come and is not defined by the things that we read, uh, the particular services that we go and attend, or the, the activities that we 
that we participate in. It's not defined by all the good things that we've tried to do or the money that we've given. It's defined by the capacity that we have as a people and individually in our lives to take the realities or the riches of the gospel, the implications of the good news of what God has done in Jesus and accurately apply it to the realities of our everyday life. If we fail to do that as pastors in our own lives and we fail to teach you how to do that and lead you in how to do that and you fail to do that in your life and we fail to do that corporately as a church we really haven't achieved much of anything when it comes down to it and the the measurement comes and we're weighed in the scales of eternity in the presence of God we really haven't done much if we haven't learned how to treasure the realities of what God has done for us in Christ and if those realities have not begun to transform the way we live our life So what we're going to be after in this series is to take some of the the larger, bolder, more accessible implications of the gospel, the things that we're clear of, the things that are clearly proclaimed in Scripture, take some of the larger implications that many of us are aware of and try to make application to our everyday life. And we try to do this week in and week out when we preach, no matter what series we're in or what book we're studying, we try to take that text and and understand it in the light of who God is and what Jesus has done and how it changes us. But there are times we want to boil it down even tighter, be even more specific, and be even more clear. And that's what we want to do in this series. So that's the context behind why we're doing it. The, The danger, the danger is something that theologian Bruce Ware calls the diminishing reality of glory. Listen to what he says. He said, distance Distance from majesty will trivialize and minimize in our eyes the nature of true grandeur. It's one of the dangers that we face when we focus very specifically uh, and implicitly upon promises that God has made to us is we tend in our culture especially to divorce those things from the realities of who God is. And as we pursue something that seems so right and so great and so given to us by God, we actually forget God himself And as we pursue what God has done for us and how it changes who we are, we tend to forget who he is in all of it and how what he has done is intricately tied to who he is. And distance from that grandeur and distance from that glory actually begins to diminish the reality of it in our life. I'll I'll tell you what I mean. Last year, uh, we had the chance to fly out to Colorado and uh, my wife and I had never been there before. Um, I grew up in the South and then we traveled a lot. We didn't ski. That's just, we didn't come from a skiing family. Um, uh, the first time I ever tried to ski, I think I was 23, and I rented skis and wore jeans, and I wore like, a sh- like a, my normal street jacket, and I was in Whistler, British Columbia, and everybody just laughed at me for like 13 hours during the day, because I just looked like an absolute moron. Um, that was the first time I'd ever seen mountains. So this past summer, my wife and I got to go to Colorado, and, and there was this moment when we're driving from Denver up into the mountains, up to Vail where we were going. And as you were approaching that unbelievably huge mountain range, it just began to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow in size the closer we got. And we got, as we, as we came up on the mountains, there was this feeling that I had in my soul that I hope there's not anything large enough to make that thing fall over. Because the immensity of these mountains began to take my breath away. I mean, I'd only seen anything like it one other time in my life. 
And it was the most beautiful thing I, had, I think I had ever seen. And we got closer and closer and closer, and we drove up in the mountains, and we could see the valleys and the peaks and the snow on top of the, the mountains in the distance. And we were just getting closer and closer, and it was getting bigger and bigger and greater and greater and grander and grander. And I was just looking for different views out of the window and out of the rearview mirrors to see different vistas and looks at these mountains because I was just breathtaking by their glory. Funny thing happened, though, as we were leaving Vail three days later and driving back to Denver, just as quickly as we approached those mountains and I was taken aback by their immensity and the nature of those things, the further and further I got away from them, the smaller and smaller they got. Until a time came when we weren't even really close to the airport, but I couldn't even see them in the mirror anymore. Distance from grandeur diminished the reality of its glory in my eyes. The further away I got from those things, the further away my heart got from the realities of their glory till now I work hard to remember what it felt like to stand in their presence and to be there. If that is not an accurate statement of the church and our culture right now in relation to God, I'm not really sure what is. We get so sidetracked by different things, and sometimes very good things, that we de- the, the, the glory and the grandeur of God gets diminished in our souls and in our eyes because we have separated ourselves and distanced ourselves from him, even if we're focusing on the things that he has given to us or provided to us, we begin to take them for ourselves and focus ourselves on those things, divorcing ourselves and distancing, distancing ourselves from the majesty of the one who gave them to us. That's the danger inherent in taking a period of time to specifically focus on riches, on the riches of the gospel and what it means to treasure those things and apply those things, especially these big ones, directly to our life, we, we face the real risk of, fo- of focusing on the gifts that God has given us and divorcing them from the one who's given them to us. And so part of what we want to do this morning is to do what, what, what Bruce Ware calls the narrowing the gap to glory, diminishing the distance from glory. So part of what we do when we start is we want to take this series and put it in its right context in relation to who God is so that it can shape our understanding of the promises and the riches that he has given us in the gospel so that we don't find ourselves focused so much on the gifts the giver has given us and we fail to be in awe or moved or thankful or humbled by the one who gave them to us to whom we must give an account one day. So if you've got your Bibles, turn them to Ephesians chapter 1. If you have one of the Bibles that we hand out at the front, that's what I'll be using today. Um, I think Ephesians 1, what page is Ephesians 1 on? It is on, in this Bible, let's see. It is on page 836. It is the 10th book in the New Testament. You start at Matthew and go right, you'll find Ephesians right after Galatians. And I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And then there are two things in that section that I actually want to slow down, focus on, and look to to give us shape, context to the series that we're going to be in, and to narrow that gap to glory, to diminish that distance between us and the grandeur of who God is and the giver of these great gifts. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll roll. Father, thank you again for the unbelievable privilege I'm still moved week in and week out by the privilege that you have given us to come together as your people, the privilege to stand before 
people that you have called, that you have brought together, that you are doing work in, whether we even recognize it or not, and then to open up your Bible and surrender our souls to it and to trust you as the creator and sustainer of all life, to speak to us, to change us, and to continue to call us to yourselves and to continue to finish and work in us what you already began. And so we ask, Lord, by your Holy Spirit in the time that we have this morning that you would quicken words that I speak, uh, quicken the realities of your scripture, uh, do work in our souls and let them change us and transform us and shape us while we're here this morning. We ask these things that you may be much of, you may be made known in this city, that we would receive great joy. Amen. Ephesians chapter one, we'll start in verse three. I'm going to read through verse 14, and then we're going to back up and look at a couple of things, and um, we'll try to narrow this gap. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Two phrases that I want to look at in this section in particular to give shape and context to the series and to work on narrowing that distance between us and glory. Look back at verse five, and I'm gonna need your help on this. In, what's the next word? Okay, too many letters. Let's go back to verse five. In. It's actually verse five in this one. So the end of verse four. (laughs) I didn't do the slides this morning. In. There we go. Man, I thought we were going to, okay. I was going to move us all down the hallway to the other classroom. And we'll go back to that kindergarten, second grade class. In love. If we're going to understand and shape context and, and, and narrow the gap between us and, and glory as we understand these things, we're going to have to understand a little bit about the giver of these riches. In love, Paul said, God has predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Back up to verse three, or verse four. Even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Here's what I want you to see. God's love towards you is an eternal love. It's an eternal love. And that has absolutely unbelievable ramifications for how we understand who he is and what he has done for us and how it gives shape to these riches that we're going to unpack. If God's love towards you is an eternal love, it means that before God spoke anything into existence, before there were lambs and giraffes and turtles and ducks and mosquitoes and stars and galaxies and mountains and people, before there was anything that is, God loved you. His love is an eternal love. It existed before you did. If God's love is an eternal love that has existed before you or anything else that exists came into being, it means that it is a love that far surpasses any other love that we could ever imagine. Here's what I mean. If you've got kids, you know what I'm talking about. All of us think to some degree or another that our kids are the best kids in the world. And to some degree or another, you think that your kid is the smartest, the, the prettiest, the best looking, the, the whatever it may be, you've got one that you think your kid fits the mold for. And you have a love for your child that exceeds any love that you could have ever imagined any day that you were alive. But here's the thing. When you were 10 years old, you had no concept of the love that you have for your child that you have right now. I guarantee you, when you were 10 years old, your son or your daughter was not the speckle of, of hope in your eye. I was not running up and down a soccer field when I was 18 years old with any concept of what it meant to love my son and my daughter the way that I do now. My love for my children, as large as it actually is, and as overwhelming as it becomes sometimes, is not an eternal love. It did not exist prior to their being born. God's love for you, God's love for his people, is an eternal love that existed before any other love, and it transcends any love that we can ever understand or experience. My mouth is dry. I haven't done this in five weeks. Sorry. And if his love is eternal, and if his love existed before anything that exists came into being, listen to this. And we could stop right here with this one. If his love is eternal, it means that his love for you is not based on anything that you have ever done. His love for you is not based on any good thing that you've ever done, and doesn't disqualify you by any bad thing that you've ever done because he loved you before you ever came into being. Listen, listen to that. Do you, do you understand that? If God's love is eternal, and if his love existed before all of eternity and time in the Godhead, in the person of God, and he loved you before he spoke anything into being, it means that nothing that you have done has, has earned God's love or separated you from it. His love is eternal. This is the unbelievable reality of what Paul is talking about when he says that in love, God chose us in Christ or in him. It means that it is foolish to think that anything that you have done, good or bad, disqualifies you from the eternal love of God. 
People tend to take these verses and focus them down on themselves and wonder, could God love me? Does God love me? If God chose people before the foundation of the earth, did he choose me? What it means is there is great hope and great joy in the reality that the love of God is eternal and existed before anything that you've ever done. It means that no one can say what I have done keeps me from being chosen by God. It's the most freeing thing you could ever come into grips with. God did not love you in eternity because of anything that you have done, would do, or haven't done yet. You haven't earned it, and you haven't disqualified yourself from it. We have both camps sitting in here this morning. The majority of us probably wrestle with the reality that we think to some degree we deserve the favor and love of God that we received in our life, and we've defined that by different things that we've done, activities we've been a part of, books we've read, uh, being the good kid in the family, whatever it might be for you. Some people sit in here and think that you have, well, I should say, with a more realistic expectation and, and assessment of their life and said, there's no way that God could love me. There's no way. I know the lies I've told. I know the relationships I've destroyed. I know the glory that I've sought for myself. I know the reputation I've tried to build. I know the reputations I've torn down. There's no way. The beauty of the love of God, the foundation to understand the reality of the riches that are ours inherent in the gospel is that God's love existed before anything came into being, which means his love for you is not conditional or based upon who you are, what you have done, or what you will do. It's an unconditional love and calling of God. We'll get to be more specific about that in a few minutes. God's love is unbelievably freeing, unbelievably transforming, and unbelievably different than any other love that we experience in our life now. That's statement one. Statement two will introduce us a little more specifically to the riches that we're gonna go through in this series. Nine times in Ephesians 1, in the verses between verse 3 and verse 14, Paul repeats a phrase or a version of the phrase, in Christ or in him. So in love, God has loved us before all things came into being. In love, his love is eternal. And he's called us before he created anything that is. In love, he has called us to himself. And Paul says nine times in these few verses that he's called us in him, in Christ. Some 114 times in the New Testament, we find some version of this phrase. And so if we're going to understand a little bit of what it means to be loved by God before all of eternity, before anything we have ever done, said, or chosen to do ever came into being, and we're going to understand what it means for him to lavish the riches of grace upon us, we need to understand a little bit about what it means to be in him. So before we unpack some of the ones in Ephesians, I'm going to show you some other ones. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. Look at this. Some 114 times you're going to find this in the New Testament. We won't go through all 114 today. These are a few that we're going to go over in the next few weeks, though. Look at this. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Now look at this, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. One of the things that we're going to unpack in the weeks to come, and one of the riches that gives shape to the realities of how we are to live and to be transformed, and one of the things that's driven by the reality that God has loved us with an eternal love, is that when he has called us to himself and called us in Christ, the old passes away, and all of a sudden we become new creations. Let me tell you why I absolutely love this, and why we have to get a hold of this, and why we have to begin to treasure this, and why this has to become a reality in our lives, and our souls, and our, and our being has to be shaped by it. it. It's because I know where I come from. I know the depths of what is in my soul. I know the things that I have done. I know the things that I have said. I know the generations that have gone before me. I know what things have given shape to who I am as a person in this world, and I know on a daily basis and I'm becoming more aware of the depths of sin and darkness in my own soul. And here's what God said. He said in the middle of the summer of 1994, he looked down and he said, no more. From all of eternity, God said, Robert Greene, no more. That is gone. The new has come. And that heart that sought its own joy and it sought, it sought its own glory and it sought its own riches outside of God has been made new with a new heart, with new desires that is shaped by the eternal love of God who called me in himself before he created all things and that old has passed and that new has come. It gives context and shape to everything that I do. On a daily basis, my desire is to wake up and to remind myself of who I am in Christ, no longer defined by the things that I defined myself by years ago. Now, we're going to take time in the weeks that come to unpack that, so I'm not going to go any further in that. But part of what it means to be in Christ, in love, is a new creation. The old passes away. Look at the next one. Romans 1. Romans 8, 1. Let's read this. Therefore, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Look at that in verse one. There, because of what God has done in Jesus, and God has called us to himself in him, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, I said it a minute ago and I'll say it again. I have not, I have not been a perfect man. I have not been a perfect man. There is much in me that if I could find the machine and turn the dials and go backwards in time, there are many decisions, many relationships, many events, many circumstances that if I could, I would go back and change. I, some of them still haunt my mind to this day. The depth with which I was willing to pursue something outside of God. But here's the good news. And here's what we're gonna talk about in a couple weeks, Romans 8.1. I don't have to. I don't have to create that machine and go back and change those things. You know why? Because of what God has done in Christ, there's no condemnation for me for the things in the past. Even greater, there's no condemnation for me for the things in the present. And even greater than that, there's no condemnation for me in the things that are to come in the future where I fail God. Where I fail to live a life that reflects the glory of God and the greatness of what he has done for me. There is therefore now no condemnation for me because of what God has done in Jesus. This is a glorious riches 
that is born out of the gospel. This is a glorious blessing that God has given us in love and purpose for us before the creation of anything that is, that we would be holy and blameless and stand before him in freedom with no condemnation from the past, the present, or the future. Unbelievable. You get that. You begin to treasure that. You begin to live accordingly to that. It will change the way you live your life. It will change the way you wake up and face the circumstances that you have to deal with on a day-in, day-out basis, the relationships you have at home, the relationships you have with your job, the things that you've done in your past, the things that you have done and will do in the future. You can wake up knowing that you will stand before God because of Christ Jesus, no longer under condemnation for those things. If there's anything that crushes churches, it's condemnation. If there's anything that bears an unhealthy and damning weight on churches and on Christians in this day and age, it's a lack of understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus in relation to condemnation and forgiveness. We're going to take a week to, to unpack that. Maybe next week. I like that one. Go to the next one. The old is gone, the new has come. There's no condemnation for your past, no condemnation for your present, no condemnation for your future screw-ups. And look at Colossians 128. We'll do 127 and 28. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone, depending upon how your version has it, perfect in Christ, mature in Christ complete in Christ. Listen to this. In love, God has called us in him. In him, God is working to transform us and change us so that one day we will stand before God and God will not look and see all of the lies, all of the things that we've done lacking in the integrity, all the things that we have done to hurt other people, to hurt ourselves, all of the ways that we have sought to build a name for ourselves and diminish the reality of, of God's glory in our life, all the ways that we have pursued joy and satisfaction in things other than him, and he will look at us and he will not see those things, but he will see his son Jesus, and he will see us in him. Unbelievable. God will look at us in that day and he will see the perfect life and righteousness of Jesus Christ and not your failings. Not your failings. Not your failings in the past, not your failings today, not the failings that you made up until that moment when you stood before him. God will look at you and see you perfect. Unbelievable. Do you ever think about that? Does that ever give any shape to the way that you understand yourself on a daily basis? Does it ever give any shape to the hope that you have and the circumstances that you face? Does it ever compel you to respond to the circumstances that you face in your life in a different way because you'll stand before God one day being found in Christ? Does that motivate you to worship him? I, I read these things and I, I wrestle with these things and I think about these things and I look at my life and it draws me to do nothing but worship him. I mean, what's left to do but to worship him for doing for me what I could not do for myself? What things do I treasure and try to draw some kind of security from and, and purpose from and meaning from when he has done all of this for me in his infinite love, in his eternal love that transcends anything that I can ever come up with or conceive of in my mind? I'm going to take a week to talk about this, what it means to be made mature, perfect, complete 
in Christ and to stand before God one day like that. And we'll go to Ephesians. Do you put it up there? We'll go to the chapter we've been in. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. There's two in here that are great. One I want to dwell on a little bit more. Look at verse 13. I want to talk about this too. In him, in Jesus, because of the eternal love of God, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him, in Jesus, with the Holy Spirit of promise. In love, God has called you to himself, and he, in Christ, he has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of God, with God, speaking all things into existence, the very Spirit of God, Paul says, it raises Jesus from the dead, the very Spirit of God, God of God, is sealed in you when you find yourself in Christ. The Spirit of God brings a supernatural reality into your life that transcends any natural emotion or ability that you have ever experienced. When the, when the Holy Spirit begins to work and shape your soul and to cultivate your soul, you begin to live in the reality of a supernatural sense of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, love, self-control that no human effort can ever duplicate or replicate. The Holy Spirit of promise comes and seals a man in Christ and you begin to read stories in the Bible and you read stories in history of what that supernatural reality begins to do to a man's perspective and begins to do to a man's life and you read of stories like Peter being crucified upside down and the church being filled with joy in the midst of such things. You begin to read stories of the Apostle John being boiled alive and the church resounding in joy in great things and what God has done. The joy of God that comes from the Holy Spirit that's birthed out of his work in your life transcends any happiness that you could ever muster up in this world right now and you can begin to go through things like that. You can begin to go through different circumstances and not be crushed. You can begin to go through different circumstances and not be destroyed. In the midst of all of those things, you can experience joy. Unexplainable, unspeakable not understandable to the natural mind, but it's the Holy Spirit of God in you, working in you, producing in you what only he can do. We're gonna spend a week on that too. At verse 14. You're sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. When in love God seals you in himself you become his possession. Now look, this is frustrating to most people. The idea of becoming someone's possession is frustrating to most people, which is why when you separate this idea from the glory of who God is and the eternal love with which he's loved us, it begins to get frustrating when you think about being somebody's possession, but you're not just anybody's possession. You're God's possession, and here's what that means. The God of all creation, the almighty creator of everything, who simply spoke and things came into being. His eternal love has you in his grip. No matter what comes, no matter what you face, no matter what temptations, trials, and struggles come, nothing can take you from the love of God. Listen to this. You, you want security. You want security. All of us wrestle with that in some sense or way, shape, form, or fashion. You may invest your money in a particular place. You may 
you know, paint your face a particular way. You may wear particular clothes. You may get particular jobs, get particular addresses, buy particular cars. You want some type of security or status to let you know that you're worth something. Listen to this. The eternal God who created everything has called you to himself in love, and he has got you, and nothing can ever take you away from him. Let storm or trouble or trial or sickness come. Let your body go. Let the house go. Let the money go. Let the market crash. You can never be taken away from the eternal love of God when he's called you to himself in Jesus. Unbelievably freeing. I don't know. We just don't get this. We don't get this. I have... I have tasted some of these things that we're going to go through in the weeks to come, and there are some that I've yet to only sniff and smell and will only know in all of eternity, but I have tasted this one. I have, I have tasted this on the tip of my tongue. It's all gone away. We've lost it all. I have nothing left to lose when it really comes down to things. We've been broken into nine times. All of my stuff has been stolen. We've had businessmen do crooked deals and take all of our money. We've found, we found ourselves nearly six figures in debt in a matter of days because of crooked business deals. I've buried my kid. There's nothing left for me to lose in this life. But in the midst of it, God in his grace and his mercy, by the working of his spirit and the sealing of me in Christ, produced a joy and a hope in our life that was unspeakable and I can't really explain, but we know that let it all go. Let it all go. Take the house now. I I don't care. Take my beat up Taurus now. I I don't really care. I've got nothing left to lose But knowing that God can't lose me frees me up to do whatever he says. No longer do I have to act or make decisions out of fear, fear of money, fear of safety, fear of security, fear of reputation, fear of what you think about me. I don't have to worry about it because God has defined me by his eternal love and he holds me in his hands. The God who spoke everything into creation, the God who came in his son and speaks and storms stop who speaks in the dead rise, who speaks in the lame walk, who speaks in the deaf hear. That God has you in his hand by his love. What more do you need? What more do you need? What security are you chasing after now? You want security. Let this become a treasure in your soul. You have become his possession. You have become his possession. Now your creator and your father is calling you to live, to live, to live. Listen to this, one of the great Puritans. Who is this God who calls us to himself? I would have put this on the screen for you, but I didn't want to break Chris's fingers typing. Listen to this. This is just a testimony of God calling you to himself and calling you his possession. Listen to this. My durable riches and righteousness will be yours. Though all shall forsake you, yet I will not forsake you. When the world and all that's therein shall be burned up, I will be a standing portion for you. When you're forgotten among the dead, I will remember you with an everlasting loving kindness. My unchangeableness shall be the rock of your rest. When all the world is like a tumbling ocean round about you, here you may fix and settle. I am your resting place. The unchangeableness of my nature, of my counsel, and of my covenant are sure footing for your faith and a firm foundation for your strong and everlasting consolation. When you're afflicted, tossed in storm, and not comforted, put into me. I am a rescue of hope. I am a harbor of rest for you. Here, cast your anchors, and you shall never be moved. My strength shall be your guard. 
I am God Almighty, your Almighty Protector, your Almighty Benefactor. What if your enemies are many? More are they who are with you than they who are against you, for I am with you. What if they're mighty? They're not almighty. Your Father is greater than all, and none shall pluck you out of my hands. Who can hinder my power or obstruct my salvation? Who is like unto the God who rides on heaven for your help and in his excellency rides upon the sky? I am the sword of your strength and the shield of your excellency. I am your rock and your fortress and your deliverer, your strength, your horn of salvation and your higher power. I will maintain you over all the power of the enemy. You shall never sink if omnipotence can support you. The gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Your enemies shall find hard work of it because they must first overcome my victory. They must first then overcome my omnipotence. Can you change immutability? Before they can finally prevail against you, they must either bow or your enemies will break. Though they should exalt themselves as the eagle, though they should set their nest among the stars, even there will I bring them down. My faithfulness shall be your security. My truth shall My oath shall fail if ever you come to be a loser by me. I will make you to confess when you see the results of all of my providences that I was God, worthy of being trusted, worthy of being believed, worthy of being rested in and relied upon. In him, his love we find the eternal blessings, the eternal reality, real security, real hope, real riches. Why do I love it so much? I want to read you this. It's not going to be up there. I was reading it this morning. Isaiah 61, listen to this. What difference does it make? Where is it all going? Listen to this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Now listen to this. This is where all that in Isaiah was going, the difference that it makes, the end to which a treasuring of these riches takes us in God's love they, talking about the church at this point, may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. What difference does it make to actually begin to treasure these things with our heart, to diminish the distance between us and the eternal God who has loved us, and in the diminishing of that distance, begin to make our souls alive to who he is and to what he has done, and to have those things begin to shape and and give context and and compulsion to the way that we live our life for those riches to actually be the things that we treasure because of the one who's given them to us he and that will make us oaks of righteousness for the display of his splendor god is not glorified by compulsion god is not glorified by begrudging submission to him because we fear that he might level us in condemnation or judge us ultimately in wrath if we do the wrong thing. When we understand who he is and what he has done and the riches that are ours, he creates in us and in his people 
oaks of righteousness to the display of his glory. And as we begin to live as a people who treasure these things and they shape who we are and how we respond to the life that we live, he is glorified by a people who the Bible calls are peculiar because the joy and the strength and the power and the willingness to follow him wherever he calls us and to do what he calls us to do is something that the world has no answer for and has no answer for. And as we begin to be shaped by who he is and the realities of what he's done and begin to live accordingly to those things, oh, his splendor, his splendor is displayed. A peculiar joy begins to arise in his people. The life that we all dream of, the life with security, hope, power, the life with a new status, All of those things can be ours because they've been redefined and shaped by who God is and what he's done. The riches that ultimately are eternal. The riches that bring shape and fill that gap of eternity in our soul. The riches that really bring us what we're after in our life. The riches that really change who we are. Change how we understand our life. They can be ours. That life is ours in Christ. In Christ. That's where we're going. That's the hope with which we have, really as a church, as a people, as a pastor. I stand up here every single week and I pray for you every single week and I fight for your joy. For your joy. For my joy and your joy for God's glory. That we would become oaks of righteousness to display his splendor to a watching world. And we would do that by beginning to treasure who he is and what he's done that the riches that he provides become the riches with which we cling to, the things that we fight for, the things that we hold on to, the harbors that we put into, like the Puritan said, and find our security and find our strength in that. When that becomes the reality for us, and we continually, increasingly live according to who he is and what he's done, so then we'll be shaped into the people he's called us to be. It's then that his splendor will be made known in the city through this people. That's my hope. That's my prayer. That's what we're after in this series. That's what we're after every single week that we come in here is to find ourselves changed and shaped by who he is and what he's done. Let me pray for us. Father, lots of words in a short amount of time. Father, your spirit can do in the blink of an eye what all of our efforts and all of our striving can never achieve in a lifetime. And so I pray for your spirit's work right now in our hearts and in our souls and in our minds. Awaken an appetite for your glory. Awaken an appetite for your gospel. Awaken a desire to to challenge the things that we think bring security in our lives. To challenge the things that we think will define us. to, To challenge the things which we know in our souls are not eternal, but we distract ourselves with. Awaken in our souls a taste for, for you and for the riches that are ours because of your eternal love and your calling of us in you. And you can do that in the blink of an eye. We ask that by your spirit. And we ask for that desire as we go through this series over the next few weeks. That your gospel will become real, that it will become tangible, and that it will begin to shape and change the way we understand who we are, the life we live, and how we live in relation to you. We ask these things for your glory, for our joy. Amen.